Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, hey, hey. Good to see the two hey, of hey, you. Hey. <laughs> Hi, RJ. Hi, Sarah. What's, hey. um, what's happening uh, with you guys? Let's, give us, let's, let's banter for, for a moment before we jump Shall into we? These, uh, these incredibly so I, interesting I haven't articles. told y'all this, but, you know, our house was built in 1960 and we're the first people to buy it. So she's got a lot of problems. And two weeks ago, Josh took a shower upstairs and then the entire shower emptied into our son's closet. <laughs> um, so uh, yes we had to new have, wardrobe for neil plumbing. Uh, we had to have all of the plumbing replaced um because it was cast iron literally cast iron it was crazy looking uh when they pulled it out of the house so now great for um, cooking so not great, great for, for cooking, plumbing not great for plumbing um <laughs> So now uh, our, we're just like all living upstairs because our kids had this really neato 1960s ceiling towel uh, that we hope didn't have asbestos in it um, that they're pulling out and putting up sheetrock. So anyway, there's like five guys below me doing that right now. So if it gets loud, that is why. <laughs> Nothing like plumbing emergencies to get the blood oh. flowing. My God. I remember, I remember it at Old House, we, we were renting like... The sewage started coming up in one of the showers, and it was uh, that Ooh, lovely. that got real that, real fast. We had that too. It all Kate was it all kind of that. yeah. It, it all it all kind of happened at once. Did Neil think it was cool, or did he? Was he just? Was it just what the what the heck's happening? Um, or was he just you know, freaked out? Neil has really gotten the short end of the stick in terms of bedrooms. Uh-huh. And so I think it just felt like more of the same. <laughs> the physical. He's Are like you kidding me? Coup de yeah. He's resigned himself to that. So, yeah. That is God funny. God bless him. Oh, no. That is funny. Well, RJ. So you make him leave his girlfriend. You give him the crappy room. And then I he know. floods out. Just what are you doing to this poor kid? Oh, my gosh. I know. I yeah, know. he's going to curse your name. Holy moly. I know. I know. No. Rutger, what do you have to say? Any 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 uh, infrastructural issues to report? <laughs> in our home, uh, no. You know, ants from time to time because we do live in Florida, which is like bug central. But in yeah. general, uh, things are okay on the infrastructure front. Um, fall has arrived in Florida, thank God. Yeah. So like two days ago was the first day when you walk outside and it's actually colder outside than inside, even though you've been running the, the air conditioning nonstop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You remember Houston, Sarah? Remember the, oh, that I first did. morning, right? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that is amazing. It's dry and beautiful and wonderful. You walk outside, you're like, Jesus, did you come back? <laughs> Seriously. Like, oh, this is why this is why I live here. It's been miserable for four months and now yeah. suddenly it's paradise. Praise yeah. God. Um, we're good. Our kids are really good. Spencer okay. is like loving, loving, loving rice, has like the best group of friends. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, we hey Dave, oh, yeah. Dave. Uh, I got to, I've been traveling the last couple of weeks and um, got to do. We did this wonderful conference in Minnesota. So shout out to all those fantastic people up there. Um, and you know, and how last time uh, on the cast we talked about the uh, 
saying of second chances documentary and a bunch of people had heard it and um they showed up like i got two saint paul saints hats right as i walked in the door and then the the pastor at this church that was hosting it gave me a bobblehead of daryl strawberry in a saint's uniform no which is now like my prized possession i felt very much like this is the the token of god's work in the world so it's like a a very neat thing you know well those recordings are up and you know we had a there was a a wonderful uh woman named katie langston who i think is a, a preacher and writer in the in the um ELCA, she gave a talk that we put up on Mockingbird yesterday that is just one of the, it's just an, an unbelievable talk. So oh, if great. people are looking for something to listen to, you can connect, you mm. can listen to that on Talking Bird, which is another podcast we have, but it's um, it's also on the website. So Katie Langston is so good and, and she's always fun to just be with people and kind of hear about stuff. And, and, you know, one of the things I heard then I, cause then I went into Baltimore to pr- speak to some pastors there. And one of the things I hear from people who listen to this podcast is people genuinely don't know why it's called the mocking cast. Right. And, and I had, I had a funny interaction uh, with a gr- great guy, but he's like, you know, I just, I'm just really not like, I, I like what you guys have to say, but I'm just really not into sort of like mocking people. You know, that's just sort of not my vibe. And I was like, oh, <laughs> wait. Is that what we're doing? We, Do you think clearly. that like that's it's called the mocking cast? I mean, we're, we're not because we if you people. want we're that podcast, <laughs> we can ourselves. do that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sarah has it within herself to do a basically do. a world-class version of that podcast. Mm. We, I did, absolutely, yes. And I, you know, I'm only Coming saved soon. by grace. That's what keeps me from doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you, you've seen glimpses of it before. We no, yes. that she's got some yeah. heavy artillery. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd explain what why we're called the Mockingcast. So we're called the Mockingcast because we are all involved, or this is part of Mockingbird Ministries. And a Mockingbird is called that because the, uh, we believe that we are repeating the song we've heard like a mockingbird. In our case, the song that we've heard that is enlivening, compelling, exciting, and just sort of life-saving is the, the, the gospel, the message of God's mm. grace. So we talk about grace, and the, the idea here is that no one ever, whatever stage of their life they're in, ever sort of really uh, graduates or uh, moves into a place where they they no longer need to hear about the grace of God. And that includes us. And so the reason we're called the Mocking Cast is simply we also have an, an app. We call it the Mocking App. You know, it's uh, it was just sort of an easy way to brand the podcast. So that's it. That's the whole thing. And what we say in the in the beginning is like, we're here to talk about God's grace and, or grace in its absence and how that plays out in sort of a week to week kind of way. Anything you guys want to contribute to that? Cause I, I, I just realized, Oh my gosh, we do have all these listeners that maybe don't engage with Mockingbird's larger work, which we've got a great website. We've got an amazing print magazine, incredible conferences, incredible conferences other podcasts. We're publishing books. We've got a devotional that features stuff. The two, three devotionals that feature the stuff. Devotionals are fantastic. So check it out. Um, and also, by the way, if you are a listener, um, Write a rating a review on iTunes. That that actually helps us. We we never ask for that outside of like the the final bumper. But that's why we're called the Mocking Cast. It has nothing to do with making fun of people. It has everything to do with the mocking. Except bird. for ourselves. Yeah. Except for we mock ourselves. Slash RJ. Yeah. yeah. Slash me. Like, right. Let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
The only thing I would add to that, and when I talk about what this is, because we've, you know, we're at this new church now, and some people have listened to the podcast, and um, and they're trying to sort of understand what Mockingbird is as an organization. The other piece I add to what you said is, you know, a lot of times when we see sort of Christian media it's critical of pop culture Mm -hmm. and you're really not going to find that with us, right? Like we're going to seek out God's grace in the midst of like, you know, the world around us and and popular culture. So, which is something I really love, right? Yeah. We're looking for points of connection, not necessarily disconnection or places where we're connecting, like where we're living. Right. RJ, anything you want to say? Uh, we could be a little more like theological if we want and say we're also committed to uh, the law gospel kind of hermeneutic as, mm-hmm. as we see it laid out in the New Testament and by Paul that that um, God has two words to us, the, the law, which sort of says thou shalt and thou shalt not, and we always fall short. It, it sort of humbles us and puts us on our in our place and brings us to the end of ourselves and then the gospel, which says I've, I've saved you from your inability to be what you know you ought to be and, and from doing what you know you ought to do, that Jesus has done it all. Um, so, and then also the, the theology of the cross, right, that we believe that our, our vocation is to be true human beings, right, is to be creatures and not to be gods. Uh, and that very often the way that we come to that is, is not through success but actually through failure, that God is constantly knocking at the door of our hearts through suffering and failure saying, give up on being me. Give up on being the hero. Give up on having it all together. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your span of life? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just trust me. Put your whole faith in me and my grace and my presence and my power and enter into the freedom that I have for you. Because I want you, you know, I, that, that God is, um, he is sort of putting us to death, but not because he's so mean, because he wants to set us free, right? That we, we talk about before, there's that scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is trying to take the, the ring from, uh, from Bilbo, and he says, I, I've not come to rob you, I've come to help you. You know, put this thing down, this thing that's so precious to you, which is your own righteousness, your own need to be a hero and to be God and have it all figured out, because you're never going to have it figured out. But I'm holding you anyway, and enter into joy and freedom. So something like that. Right, guys? It makes me not want to make fun of you anymore. That's like such a beautiful well, please make, way to I mean, say it. And, and Dave, as you talk about we never graduate from this stuff, like I'll say like, you know, I'm constantly rediscovering that for myself because the pull to be the hero, to have it all figured out, to be strong, to be perfect is so strong. Mm. It's so tempting, you know? And um, I sort of, I find myself needing to constantly basically crash and burn to be reminded again, oh wait, yeah, RJ, you're not God. There is a God who loves you. Stop trying to be him. Um, yeah, yeah, my sense is that the, the, the theology you just laid out and that we hold dear and you sometimes hear us reference with sort of shorthand, but it's really just a, an idea that, this, that the, the ultimate revelation of God is that God is gracious, like yes. to actual people, loving and forgiving. But this theology has like tremendous actually interpretive power for looking at life and ourselves and in interpretive power that also doesn't seek to create us versus them categories. So it's not antagonistic. And so I think sometimes that's what's funny about calling it the mocking cast is that we're not actually trying to be, as Sarah says, we're not actually antagonistic. Um, and there's enough antagonism out there. So anyway, that's why we're called the mocking cast. We're going to start though with a, with a piece where we can sort of make fun of ourselves a little bit, or I can, I was taking my 13-year-old to the orthodontist uh, the other day, and we got there five minutes late and got a total lecture. 
you know. No. Yes. Huge lecture. Uh And then he went back there and like came out and I got another lecture about uh, dental hygiene and uh, (laughs) how he needs to be brushing his teeth more and better and more vigorously and all this stuff around braces. So if I were to tell you that that's not an uncommon experience when it comes to oral hygiene, uh, I, I think a lot of people would say, yes, I've been lectured a lot at the dentist's office too. I mean, maybe you haven't, but I have. And I say this with all due respect to the dental hygienist and, and especially to our friend Stephanie Phillips, who is a dentist. Um, You'll be a dentist. Also, okay. also Stacy Bird, who I know has been a dental hygienist. Yes, I was thinking of so. you, Stacey. Um, yeah. This is, came in the New York Times by Adam Mastriani. Uh, Do I have to floss my teeth, he asks. He writes this. He says, I don't floss. This makes me, as my dentist always seemed to imply, a naughty boy, a disgusting human willing to walk around with bits of food stuck between my teeth. Of all the dreaded parts of any dentist visit, the worst is receiving a condescending lecture on the merits of flossing. Well, then I found a secret weapon. A 2019 research review by an independent network of scientists, widely considered to be the gold standard of such things, pulled together studies that investigated the impact of flossing on dental health. 35 randomized controlled trials with about 4,000 participants total, and the results were dismal. Flossing, quote-unquote, may reduce gingivitis, the meta-analysis found, but the effects were uncertain and barely significant statistically. At my next appointment, when the dentist innocently inquired about my flossing habits, I dropped my newfound knowledge bomb. She replied... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> poor, poor dentist, that it's good to floss, and we left it at that. Hours later, I received a phone call from another dentist at the same practice. My colleague told me what you said about flossing, he said, exasperated. <laughs> he went on to say something like, look, I know about the evidence, but if I had to choose whether someone only brushed or only flossed, I would choose floss. He says, I, he writes, I thought I was born into the age of science and uh, uh, reason. But what my trip down the flossing rabbit hole taught me is that this is nowhere nearly as true as I hoped it to be. But the more I learn about science, the more I discover basic mysteries that I assumed were solved long ago. Um, For example, it seems obvious that sunscreen should protect you from skin cancer, but a 2018 meta-analysis could not confirm that this is true and concluded that more studies were needed. Extreme conviction, like we have about sunscreen, about flossing, requires extraordinary evidence, and the evidence we have is usually far from extraordinary. But he sort of comes to a more hopeful conclusion. He says, what sustains me now is neither certainty nor hopelessness, but a determined, humble optimism. The right answers are often simply unknown, and I might die without getting to know the truth. And yet the truth will be known one day. Just as we solve many of the mysteries that befuddle our ancestors, our descendants will solve many of the mysteries that befuddle us. Our ignorance is profound, forgivable, and temporary. There are only two true errors. One is believing that we have no errors left to make, and the other is believing that those errors are permanent and irreversible. I'm talking about humility. He's basically saying uh, all this um, this something he was thought, told was ironclad. Flossing is good, is important. It hasn't turned out to be the case, at least looking at this evidence. What, what do you think about this? Do you guys have good relationships with your dentists or do you floss constantly? Or are you one of those brush your teeth four times a day people? What's going on? We've never talked about oral hygiene. 
Oh my gosh. Should we though? It seems uh, so important. I mean, it's just gross when you're like, uh, sometimes I forget to brush my teeth in the morning, but that is true of me. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm a big flosser. Like, I, and par- so it's interesting. I It soothes my, your anxiety. Well, my mental, my, my mental health, my dental health has been like a real journey. Cause when I was like nine, my best friend's family had mouthwash and I was like, this is amazing. And I just, unbeknownst to my parents, I asked for them to buy it for me. And then for easily until I was 16. So from nine to 16, I never brushed my teeth. I just used mouthwash. Oh, So cool. Yeah. And um, never had a cavity. But when I was around high school, um, you know, I did not grow up with dental insurance. And so uh, hashtag self-employed parents. Um, So they took us to the dental school of Mississippi to get our teeth cleaned. (laughs) And um, they had a great dentist there who actually my parents were very dear friends with, um, who her other main practice was at the prison. And she did dentistry at the prison. And I don't know how she explained it to me, but it must have been how she explained it to prisoners. And it just, there was no shame. I just remember there was like this very thorough explanation and it just stuck with me. And so now like, I'm pretty like when I, you know, when I remember to brush my teeth in the morning, I do floss. I brush them every night really carefully. But the other thing I want to say about this is like, I know people who, for example, our son, uh, who takes really good care of his teeth, when he went into the dentist when he was like six or seven, they audibly gasped and said, did you have a fever with him when you were pregnant with him? And I said, no. And they said his back molars, like there's this thing you can get and they just don't develop properly. And it's like piles of mush. (coughs) And I feel like, teeth are so like you get what you get do you know what i mean like we all know those people who do all the work brush and floss and do everything and then they've got one cavity after another and there's so much judgment around cavities and it's like meanwhile my ass is just like slip sliding through you know middle school and high school on a whim and a prayer and some listerine <laughs> and i'm fine you know yep. so like i don't know yeah I hear you. That's so interesting. It, we want to have a one-to-one correlation with these things. It's never, totally. never that simple. And but the, the moral aspect here, because you're right, shame is somehow in dental school. From what I can tell, they don't talk much about the reverse effect of shaming your patients. Because I've never yeah. had someone who doesn't be like, listen. I don't know who you think you are, but you've got to stop everything you're doing and take care of your mouth better uh, or else um, you were going to die. And you're sort of like, whoa, I was thinking, worried about a lot of things, but not about this. And um, (laughs) one more thing. thing. I know my, my my father honestly stopped going to the dentist for this reason. He's just that sensitive to it. Um, maybe he's just going to find a different one. But RJ, what do you think? I had a very gracious dentist, Dr. Kirchhoff, Ooh. who I loved, who has since retired. He was wonderful. And he was also, he was the nicest man. And he would also, while you were in his chair with your mouth open, he would just talk nonstop, just would not stop talking, which allowed you to, to focus on what he was saying and not what was going on in your mouth. But I remember in my 20s, I was going to visit him. I was home and I was like, my mom sent me up an appointment because I didn't have my, my own dentist. Sure. But I had some cavities and I felt really guilty. And I was like, Dr. Kirchhoff, what can I do? Like, I, I brush, I floss, I do my best. And he's like, RJ, 
it's genetics. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. He's like, I have patients who floss and brush till their gums bleed. They get cavities. I have others who never do, and they don't. It's mm. genetics. There's nothing you can do. And I was like, oh, my God. Thank you so much. That's really wonderful. There's something very gracious about genetics, though. It's like oh, those who don't deserve right. get. I mean, the, the flip side is those who work it's so hard control. don't get 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 cavities. But uh, yeah, it's a real vineyard situation. Genetics, you know, it's your <laughs> of the vineyard, aka genetics. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's beyond your con- it's beyond your control. So yeah, I had a good good thing with him. And then I guess since then, I just always take like my dentist on me right now has been on me for like two years to go see some kind of gum specialist. And I'm just like whatever my teeth don't hurt <laughs> you know when it starts hurting i'll deal with it yeah but uh i don't yeah i, I don't feel know. like and we're the, gonna the, get so many emails from like dental professionals well the sunscreen thing too spreading because, fake news to guys yeah yeah did I, there was a big article in outdoor magazine maybe like four or five years ago that basically said yes people who wear sunscreen get a little bit less of a certain type of skin cancer but they get more of every other type of cancer and they're more deadly and they have more heart disease. Like the benefits of sun exposure on the whole far outweigh the risks. Yeah. You know, so the basic thing was like, you know, it's not as ironclad as you think. And there are people apparently who get like vitamin D deficiency because they wear sunscreen so much. And it's like, that's not the point. But it is. this is so. a warning against uh, yet again. I mean, we're living in an era of like ironclad certainty about every conceivable no. thing. And it's just a reminder. It's like the stuff, there will be things that you look, that you and I look back on when we're 70 and uh, just feeling so happy. Oh my God, we're going to be so happy when we're 70. We're going to look back on and say, oh my gosh, I, I was so certain about such and such and I'm no longer now. I mean, I think it's an encouragement to hold everything a little lightly. This is what certainly the way I, I talk about, yes, in low anthropology, like there's some um, we, there, there, there is such a thing don't know. as truth and comprehensive truth. We just don't have access to it in the way that we think we do. Yeah. And um, dentistry is one fascinating area where this happens. Um, Remember Sleeper with Woody Allen when he wakes up and it turns out that like wheat germ is really bad for you, but smoking and chocolate are really good for you. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. that is funny. Well, we're, let's move on from talking about kids to talking about couples. This is interesting. Uh, Alyssa Shalaski writing in The Cut interviewed Esther Perel about the three things that every couple fights about. I guess she's got a new uh, sort of as the Esther Perel, the sort of prominent Oh my God, can I guess? Seriously. But two of them seem obvious. She's a new but... eight-part course. Okay, what are the three things that couples fight about most, Sarah? Domestic responsibilities. I was going to say sex and money. Finances uh-huh. and sex. Um, well, you're about to find out. I'm not going to, I'm not going it, to, it's, I think she goes a little deeper than that. She, she wants to okay. say, what are you fighting for underneath what you're fighting about? Oh, like a sense of fairness. Yeah. A sense of, yeah. yeah a sense of sort of, a sense of like true intimacy and vulnerability, <laughs> a sense of control. Blah, blah, blah. We've all been in a lot of therapy on this podcast. But well, okay. when we, when I do uh, premarital counseling with couples, I mean, I always am very curious. It's like, what are the points of friction? What, what do you guys yeah. fight about? Like what? And, and if they say, we've never had a fight, I say, you, I, you know, <laughs> hold, hold, hold on to your seatbelts. Like, you're not getting married not, yet. I'm not, yeah. not, it's not time for you to get married. Um, yeah. But uh, this uh, Alyssa Shalassi, who's a columnist over there, she's like, she's, she, she loves asking people, like, what is it you fight about? Because, you know, by the way, some couples fight about God. And, you know, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. laundry's one, uh, sex, money. I think you could add on to that, like in-laws, family, like 
Mm. These are oh, these are big sure. big areas of conflict for people. So this is what Perel says when she's asked her to point blank, like, what about what's going on with the fighting in in because the interviewer sort of likes fighting. She finds it sort of fun. Uh, Perel says, I know. Uh, she says, sometimes we fight for justice. Sometimes you fight for fairness. Sometimes you fight to correct a wrong. Sometimes you fight because you're not being heard. Sometimes you fight because it creates heat or it energizes you or it emboldens you. Fighting is an energy as well as an interaction. I think some people have witnessed fighting a lot more than others. They've witnessed fighting that was insidious and hurtful, and others have witnessed fighting that was temporary and quickly covered over. Some people get scared when they go through fighting. They anticipate terrible escalation, and others just think it's a loud moment with people who scream and use words, and then uh, life continues. But she then goes on to say, well, how do actually couples fight? She says this, she says, everybody forgets why they choose each other in the first place. Huh. She says, you met your guy and you thought, stable, solid, equanimous, good listener, does not get rattled. And then what initially attracted you also becomes a source of conflict later. But then you're naming the same set of characteristics differently. Quiet becomes never talks, doesn't tell me what he thinks, takes three months to react. But you can't know this up front, and it doesn't matter because it still doesn't mean you made a bad choice. It means that you each made the choice to find the person who has the part that you need to add to your repertoire. So Esther says, what is it you're really fighting for? You have to look not at what people are fighting about, but what they are fighting for, the underneath. Underneath, most couples are fighting for power and control. Whose priority matters more? Who gets to make the decisions? Or they fight, that's the first one, or they fight for trust and closeness. Do you have my back? Can I trust you? Will you be there for me? Or thirdly, they fight for respect and recognition. Do you value me? Do I matter? Those are the three main things. So she says, if I don't do the dishes, you might interpret this as you don't care or I will always be alone. You tell yourself, I chose somebody so I would finally not be alone and someone who will be there for me and take care of me or at least help me and participate with me. And now every time I ask you to do the dishes, I'm not talking about the dishes. I'm actually talking about how I don't want to feel alone like I felt my entire childhood when I was taking care of my siblings because my father left us and my mother had three jobs. That's the story. It's so clear to me. Perel says, what are you fighting for? To not feel alone. Therefore, you attack because what you're fighting for is way more important than what you're fighting about. Mm. I think I could say that this is true. Uh, the, it's always that my therapist would say, it's like, the, what's the symptom? What's the presenting symptom this week of the, the where the conflict is coming out? Is it really money you're fighting about, or is it the fact that the other person's not worrying about money in the way that you want them to be worried about it with you? You feel mm -hmm. alone. Is it really uh, sex, or is it the fact that the, they you don't think the other person is thinking about you and your own needs and is sort of off in their own la-la land? I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this? I know you never fight with your spouse, but... <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder about, like, the summary of, like, is it just about feeling alone? Like that's such an interesting, I hadn't considered that as like the, like an answer, but I do think, I mean, I think our arguments are often about, well, we're in this whole new season. That's crazy. Right. Because I don't have a job. I mean, I have this job, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, it gives me some meaning and purpose, but, um, I don't have a job beyond that. So like we've gone from like having a, a cleaning lady show up once a week to, you know, clean it top to bottom. Literally she folded and put our laundry away to me. 
who really likes to cook and doesn't like to do any of the other stuff. Um, <laughs> and so I can feel pretty alone, right, in like domestic responsibilities. And um, I think we've we've had to have a lot of conversations about that. So, for example, one one conflict is like I try to, you know, I'm, I'll get the kids downstairs. Somebody has to stay downstairs with them or they fight. Like, I don't know if you guys can just magically tell your kids to get ready for bed and they do it. But like <laughs> there has to be a ref in our household. Right. And so I go downstairs and then it's like Josh will just chill there, which like. Josh has worked a whole day. He's gone from meeting to meeting. Like he's got a whole thing he's got going on that I don't see. Right. And, but I'm still like, I need you up and doing stuff. You know, I need you to unload the dishwasher. I need you to clean the kitchen. I'm still working. You should be too. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, what, but isn't, isn't that just about me feeling alone? Right. Mm. And I mean, I think the relationship to, so when I was 10, uh, my parents fired three women that cleaned our house and that became my job. Right. And so I was, yeah. So I cleaned the house every week. That was my job. I folded the laundry. I put the laundry away. I did all these things. So for me, there's this direct connection that I feel alone. Right. And overwhelmed. Right. Cause as a kid, I was always so overwhelmed by how much housework had to be done. Mm. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot there to, to listen to and unpack and then, you, and then, right, then that's all in yourself. And then to have that conversation with your spouse, like, I love this honesty. It's why I love Esther Perel of coming from a place of like, not just, I feel alone, you're not doing anything, but more like, this is why I feel alone. And how can you help me navigate this? Mm. Yeah. So. And that, people yeah. will very rarely say, oh, well, I don't care that you don't feel alone. In that sense, it's like, oh, well, now, I, okay, I can put in five minutes with the kids. Like, that's um, – if it was yeah. just this sort of arbitrary, like, you don't want me on the couch thing, then it's a different story. But, it, you, right. you know, when you understand the, that deeper emotional truth, I guess you could say. But, Rucker, what do you – you've you've been married longer than either of us. Or? Any of us, yeah. Combined. We have definitely gone through phases in our marriage where we were fighting a lot. Usually yeah. it's, you know, when there's a new baby in the house oh. or when there's uh, some major life transition happening or, or when we're uh, just kind of strung out and exhausted and we end up <clears throat> we turn on each other. Um, lately, for whatever reason, we – and we are still going through stuff, right? Like we, we're, we're adjusting to only having one kid at home. We're both kind of working full time for the first time in our lives, you know, two of our – kids have gone away to college and you know we're, we're still even three years in kind of still settling into our new life here that sounds weird sure. to say but with covid and college applications and kids going away um and we're just tired I, I do feel like by the grace of god for some reason we seem to be able to tackle those things together like the thing is always our therapist used to say is can you maintain the bond can you view yourselves as facing the problem together as a unified force rather than allowing whatever the problem is to to divide you, to come in between you, start blaming each other for the problem rather than saying, how do we solve this problem um, together? But the thing that struck me is how, how marriage is – it's just – it's always – it's a faith proposition, right? It, it's, it's continuing to believe even in the midst of very difficult times, looking at your husband, looking at your wife, saying – I trust and believe that you are actually the person that God has for me, even if I'm really mad at you right now, or you're not giving me what I want. Mm. 
Um, I'm not getting what, what I need from you. I'm trusting that you're actually the person I'm supposed to be with, and we need to hang in there and figure it out together and, and see, see how God is actually molding us and shaping us through this relationship and not kind of just give up on it and throw in the towel, right? The minute you lose—when you lose faith in that is when it's really over, right? If you believe that you're supposed to be together for some reason, that God's in it with you, you can kind of get through just about anything, even if it's difficult. It's when you say— um, yeah, when you when you lose faith, when you lose heart. It's you a know? faith proposition. It is. The, uh, Perel says one of the most beautiful hacks here is humor. That um, even totally. in the midst of this, you sort of like, are we really going to do this right now? Or you just makes it not not you don't. It's not dismissive, but it's sort of like. She also talks about like how sometimes it helps to just watch it, even if you're still mad at each other. Watch, hold hands while you're watching a show. Just the physical contact actually does help, even if you feel like your skin's crawling. Um, uh, but she says, really, that it all comes down to the communication about what the deeper thing is. Um, and she's, there's another wonderful zinger of a line. She says, the only time people really know what you want and what you need without you really having to say anything is basically in utero. <laughs> That's good. That's it. And you think you you get so furious at other people for not being able to read your mind, or she talks. The interviewer talks about how she was furious with her boyfriend about not asking about a mammogram that she had, even though she doesn't think she actually even told him she was going to have the mammogram. Yes, girl. And uh, she was like, she's like, and Esperell's like, well, I think you might have slightly lofty aspirations for him if you never even told him it was happening. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but the way that expectation uh, works its way out in terms of hurt and resentment is is another fascinating dynamic here. I mean, it is because it's all just like us trying to like put like like fill in the patches of our childhoods through this person who wasn't there for our childhoods. You know what I mean? Who wasn't in our brain? Like doesn't doesn't know these things? But that's like ultimately right. Like that's that's what's happening. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know we would probably say that somehow mercy, grace is is the is the is the hope for all of us here, including those in relationships and those outside of them. And that's what there's a really long essay that includes some extremely powerful photographs that I recommend everyone check out. We'll have it in the show notes. Um, that was in the the New York Times this week. It was written by Dan Barry. It's about the Minnesota Board of Pardons. And the title is, I Want to Be Forgiven. I Just Want to Be Forgiven. Now, I didn't know this. You know, I'm, I'm on a bit of a Minnesota kick these days after being there and having such a great time. They talk about the Minnesota Board of Pardons, which is just three people, the governor, the attorney general, and the state's chief justice. When they meet... They will sit unsmiling at a long table facing a much smaller table that features tissue boxes and a digital clock set to 10 minutes. Everyone comes up who is asking for a pardon. You can't ask for a pardon until at least five years after your conviction or 10 years if it was a serious crime. And, um, you know, you, you come and you bring forward uh, testimonies and, you know, if there's debt, you have to show that you've paid it back and all this stuff. And this essay tells the story of a bunch of people going through this process. And it's really about where the rubber meets the road in terms of mercy. Among the powerless looking for a pardon would be Jim Lorge, convicted in 2005 of manufacturing methamphetamine. Now a well-respected drug counselor and program director, he had been in recovery for 16 years and engaged to be married and feared being forever defined by distant mistakes. A pardon 
It can mean better job and housing opportunities, the restoration of gun rights, the ability to chaperone school trips. But it can also offer something more intangible, the formal return to society's good graces. Mr. Lorge, 48, asked before his hearing, do I have to carry this burden for the rest of my life? I want to be forgiven. I just want to be forgiven. But formal forgiveness in Minnesota comes only through the pardon board. Now, Barry goes on to sort of riff a little bit more existentially. It says, no one can expect mercy. No one has the right to be forgiven. Pardons live beyond the parameters of the criminal code's black and white text. They are, by nature, extraordinary. Rooted in part in the ancient doctrine that monarchs derive power directly from God, pardons are a discretionary tool often given to the executive branch, the president or the governor, to override court-ordered sanctions, to shorten a prison sentence, to restore civil rights, or eliminate the obligation to identify oneself as a felon. They're intended to provide relief from what Alexander Hamilton called the necessary severity of the law a kind of safety valve against injustices inherent in justice systems. Margaret Love, the founder of the Resource Center and former United States pardon attorney, said it is a national struggle in legislatures to figure out how to deal with this enormous number of people with a criminal record who can't get jobs or housing. We're trying to reintegrate people, but we still won't forgive them. Now, before we get to sort of Mr. Lorge and his story, because it's powerful. Pardons. I wrote a, a post the other day in this this thing I'm writing called Things You Won't Hear Anywhere Else But Church called Doormats Are Holy. And I was talking about the sort of injunction to forgive 70 times 7 that Jesus gives. And I said that the presidential pardon process is never uncontroversial. And I, I meant that. Meaning like pardons are always, as he says, they're always extraordinary. They're going to upset people. And they're going to upset the people who've been hurt by the person who's done the thing. But uh, perhaps that just illustrates how necessary they are. I, I don't know, pardon. What do you guys think when I'm reading this, uh, or even about that word? Well, I would just say maybe they're going to upset the person who something was done to, or maybe that person is is has come to terms with forgiveness of them. So that I, I sometimes I think it's it's the it's the jeering crowd, right? Huh. That keeps someone like unforgiven more, much more so, much more so than it is the person who's wronged. Huh. Um, uh, so I, that's the first thing I would say. I, you know, I, this, his story hits close to home. We have a relative uh, who married into our family who is one of those guys that you're just like, you know, if you guys get divorced, we're keeping you. Like he's the best. <laughs> And he he spent time in federal prison for making meth. And, you know, I I hadn't thought about all of the ways that this is. And he's thankfully gone on and started his own business. But, I mean, of course he had to, right? Like, yeah. I hadn't thought about all the ways that this would have impacted his life directly. And, um, you know, he's gotten married and has a beautiful family and you know how incredible that is, but how this is probably always like looming mm. on some level. It's so always there. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Sarah, that reminds me. Yeah. In, in Houston, I remember there's a program called the prison entrepreneurship program, which mm -hmm. helped people who were either in prison or, or just out of prison to start their own businesses because they had no other options. You right. know, the minute you check that box on a job application that you spend time in jail, it's like, bye-bye. 
You know, right. you gotta start your own start your own thing. Yeah. It is interesting the contrast between, you know, um the inner sense of guilt and then the 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 guilt, the the judgment which is foisted upon you from the outside. Mm. You know, it reminded me I wa- I don't know why I watched this documentary, but I watched this documentary about the one child policy in China. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. under which something like three to four hundred million children were either aborted or or um killed or you know and they interviewed this one healthcare worker a female who by her own estimation had helped to abort and someone's very late you know eight months in nine months in oh like, my god like 50 to sixty thousand babies Jesus. something crazy like that and she and of course what she'd been told by her society was that that she'd done the right thing like yeah. she had won awards for it. She had been commended, you know, she because that was what needed to be done to enforce the one child policy. But she carried so such a burden that she um she dedicated the rest of her life to helping couples who were infertile to have children. And she said there was a Buddhist, she went to go see a Buddhist monk who said, For every child that you help bring into the world, uh, you'll be forgiven for a hundred babies. You know, and she she had um, all these pictures of all these children she'd helped to be born. But her, but clearly she she was never going to get over the burden of carrying this. You know, this, so the internal versus the external, right? Mm. That some of you can feel internally forgiven, but there's still all these external people that saying yeah. you're not. Versus the external which says you've done the right thing, but you know, sort of you've got the sense inside that you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Is there something about hearing the proclamation? You know, to get into a preaching kind of thing. To hearing it from the outside that you are forgiven, yeah. Yeah. no matter how yeah. you see Having this right this point. Yeah. So let's. Oh, this is. They talked about Mr. Lorge. An anxious Mr. Lorge thought that prayer might help. So three days before his appointment with the pardon board, he gave witness at a Sunday service of the small revived church in a public school cafeteria in the suburb of Forest Lake. The service began with a few announcements and some hymns, and the worship leader introduced the guest speaker. Mr. Lorge, in shorts and a short-sleeved t-shirt, rose to face the audience. He stood six feet two inches with a shaved head and a neat goatee. I'm a retired meth cook, he began. Hmm. Then he tells his whole life story about how two decades ago his family was prominent in the nearby town of North Branch, that his parents owned a company that made transformers and their son was sort of being groomed to inherit the business his father had started. They lived in a large house with an ingrown pool. Um, They attended Trinity Lutheran Church. They rooted for the Vikings and they were known sort of among the movers and shakers of their community. People knew us. Mr. Lorge was a boy scout and a class clown. He started working for the company, did well. And by his mid twenties, he was living in a neighboring town, his own house, serving as a volunteer firefighter. And that is when he started uh, he, he got acquainted with meth and he started taking it. And then he got so into taking it that he ended up taking over a, a as a cook after the local cook went to prison and he set up shop in his parents' company. Oh, and so that gosh. he was working for the company all day. And then at night he was at the company uh, cooking meth until one day a SWAT team descends and yeah. his parents are devastated. He, he, he lives amid the collateral damage. And they talk about his mother, especially, who was busy now helping him choose an outfit for the hearing. Instead of retiring, she watched her husband sell the family business and lose the proceeds in a motorcycle company that he thought would engage Jim enough to end his addiction. She nursed her dying husband while their son smoked meth in the basement, felt ostracized in her community, and lost her home to foreclosure. At times, she considered suicide. Now at 74, Miss Lorge is selling real estate. They had planned to move to Florida, but now all that's left is the seashells that are on the sort of wall in their Michigan apartment. This wouldn't have happened if Jim hadn't gone off the rails, she said. Mm. 
Mr. Lorge's addiction had upended the lives of his parents, his sister, his son, his family's employees, and so many others. Remorse defined him. I made such a bad name for my family, he said. I disgraced them. But he had worked hard to make amends and repair relationships. It was now so straight that he played pickleball with a deputy sheriff who once arrested him. Everyone else in my life that I've wronged has forgiven me. Now I just need the state of Minnesota to do the same. So up gets Mr. Lorge and his words halting at first gained as he spoke. Expressing remorse for the harm he had caused, he said that he had spent the past 16 years making amends, including by dedicating his life to counseling others with addiction. A pardon, he said, would help him and his fiancée find better housing and allow him to volunteer at school activities involving their blended family. It would also send the encouraging message to his struggling clients that we can change our outcomes and eventually remove the label of felon. And come to find out, he gets his pardon. He gets his pardon. And there's pictures of him uh, with tears in his eyes hugging his mother. Uh, So I know that's a lot to take in. It's hugely complicated. What struck me is the fact that there's a label over him that needs, he sort of wants to be that label to be removed. There's something very theological about that. Um, Mm -hmm. There's something like, you know, uh, calling a person, uh, you know, treating them as though they're innocent when they're been found guilty or changing their name to proclaim or sort of speak mercy over them, uh, new life, etc. It has to be, it, there's got to be this label change, but what else, if anything comes to mind when you read, when you hear about this? Uh, I mean, I think that certainly the, the mercy of his mom is pretty and his dad, like the whole, you know, like I do the desperation and we, we had a wonderful piece about this on the website, uh, several months back. I think we talked about it, but uh, the desperation that, uh, parents have often, you know, they're dealing with adult children. So these are older parents to get help their kids, you know, battle addiction is so, visceral you know i mean it's just and and not every parent does this um certainly what they did but this is just you know um the the desperation to have your kid back and i think you know it 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 really surpasses anything they've done to sort of ruin your life right because you're just so desperate to get them back that it doesn't matter if you live in a small apartment with shells on the wall and you're (laughs) having to hustle houses at 74 years old you know you're just so happy to have your kid back like you know it's yeah i was reading uh, this that philip yancey book what's so amazing about grace and he talks about the prodigal son and the lost coin that jesus says he says there's something a deeper joy about finding something again which had been lost mm. than finding something in the first place. <laughs> and I mean, it's emotionally inarguable, right? I mean, yeah. having something restored is that much more, I don't know, explosively joyous. Totally. And transcendent totally. than just yeah. finding something good the first time around. Yeah. As you were talking about the way in which this man kind of destroyed his own life and also destroyed the lives of everyone around him. Um, that was powerful. And I, and I do, you know, I, I hope that there has been full restoration. I trust there is. And I, you know, I think always about what Stephen Colbert said that sometimes by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, you can look back and you can say, I'm thankful for the thing which I most wish had not happened. Like Mm -hmm. maybe his mom is like, well, yeah, I wanted to be in Florida you know, wealthy with my husband. That's not how it worked out, but this is better. And I'm thankful that this happened. Yeah. But maybe not. 
Yeah. You know, and I, I, I find myself just whenever I hear someone saying like things like, well, you only got one life to live. You know, you only live once YOLO, you know, you better do it now or it'll never happen. It's like, well, no, that's not what we believe, mm-hmm. right? That sometimes you, you find happiness and satisfaction and justice and forgiveness and, and all that in this life. And sometimes you don't. Yeah. But the good news is that you will someday. Yeah. And that, that someday we'll sort of have the, the happiness and satisfaction that we so thirst after. But so often this life is full of unexpected pain and there's joy in the midst of that, right? There can be redemption and forgiveness and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm just grateful that this life is not, is not the, is not all there is, is not the end of the story. Cause sometimes it ends well and sometimes it, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't go so well, yeah. but it will someday. So, I mean, yeah. isn't that the hope? And and the, the I mean, the final piece I wanted to talk about briefly here is that Todd Brewer wrote on the Mockingbird site called "God's Compassion and Indifference to Sinners," which is about imputation. Imputation is a word we throw around sometimes on this podcast, and it's very much uh, in line with the kind of message we we've, we repeat. Uh, imputation though, is a theological term, and it's the idea that God gives or reckons a moral status of righteousness to an otherwise sort of ungodly person. You know, you are imputed, a, 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 a sort of a, an identity or a, a goodness is imputed to someone who doesn't uh, deserve it. And, uh, you know, this is, we, we believe, is sort of the crux of not just Christian uh, faith, but also sort of the life of ministry. But Todd's really interested in talking about how this sort of plays out. This is what Todd says. He's a translating God's imputation of righteousness into personal ethics entails a radically unconditional attitude towards others. Imputation isn't so much saying you're a great person, despite all evidence to the contrary, as much as saying you matter to me no matter who you are. The former statement substitutes a positive evaluation for a negative one, thus reifying the criteria itself. The latter you matter to me no matter who you are, expresses approval of the person by circumventing or overturning evaluation altogether. There are numerous colloquial maxims that capture this interpersonal dynamic, like through hell or high water, thick or thin, in sickness and in health. But these aren't usually thought of as imputation. Interpersonal imputation is- Ride or die. Ride or die, ride or die. Uh, Interpersonal imputation is a compassionate indifference to one's neighbor, to care and not to care, suffering the personal cost of their wrongdoing without recompense. And Lord knows it is costly. Such a non-contingent relation, uh, by definition, isn't instrumental. You know, demonstrating unwavering loyalty to a friend in order that they might respond in more or less the correct way is not what we're talking about here. That is Mm. instrumental imputation. If imputation is a means to an end, uh, it can also easily be detected as by the recipient as manipulation. So mm. whether imputation works to improve the recipient is entirely inconsequential to both parties. Of course, imputation does often work, but that's beside the point. Instead, free from expectations, compulsions, accountability, or fear of wrongdoing, the relationship governed by imputation is the only kind that will last through all the turbulences of life. It could seem impossible to relate to others with compassionate indifference, like telling people the sky isn't blue or the earth is flat, but this apparent impossibility may betray a failure of imagination. 
Imputation is why Paul can say that the churches in Corinth are saints who have already been sanctified. It is also why Paul writes upwards of four letters to this misbegotten community. Imputation is how anyone can love otherwise irredeemable family members without cutting ties altogether. It is how anyone can stay on Facebook without blocking everyone. Imputation is the only manner of loving in which both parties are able to flourish, knowing that there's nothing done or left undone that threatens the unswerving loyalty of the other. I love this. I mean, I think it's such a great take on that because I I do think, you know, we use imputation a lot. When I explain it to people, I always say like, you know, it's the undeserved, unearned grace of God spoken over us, like as, you know, as forgiven even while we are still sinners. And I do think that is what it is. And I also love this idea of imputation between human beings, right? And, Mm. you know, especially as a parent, right? Um, I think sometimes imputation can feel a little manipulative. (laughs) Um, But but I, I, I also think there's something really beautiful about when you've got a real baddie on your hands to just be like, I know you're a good kid. I know we're going to figure this out. You know, I know we're going to get through this, which like, you don't maybe know. True. <laughs> you don't know. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I always love the idea. And I feel like your dad said this, but I feel like it was, I'm talking to Dave, but I, I feel like it was like somebody told me your dad said this in a lecture. So I don't even know if it's written down, but sort of like imputation is like the great, like God's great merciful lie to us, right? That we are as you know, that we, that we are beloved, that we are forgiven, that we are these things. And, you know, and, and based on the standards of the world, like none of that is true. And based on the standards of God, none of that is true. And yet God chooses to stay in relationship with us, chooses to forgive us, you know, chooses these things. And I, I love the idea of, you know, the connection and especially right now. And we, we haven't talked about this and I I know we haven't because it's a complicated thing to talk about when I think about, you know, the horrors of what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now and the way that, you know, in addition to this, just, horrible, horrible things that are happening there, we somehow have also decided it's our job, you know, on this, in in these United States, to, to tear each other down and to pull each other apart based on that conflict. Mm. And, you know, there's no... There's no room for an assumption of maybe these people have a lack of information. There's no room for assumption of, you know people's commitment to one side or another and that you know and that 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 is what they believe and like that's okay it's like immediate like we have to tear them down we have to say that they're anti-islamic we have to say that they're you know anti-semitic and like how um how it's like one more disastrous thing for the project of imputation right with within their our relationships that we have so mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's really, really tough. And but I, and of course, that's all in my mind a lot as I talk about the idea that there are things we don't know that we the, the certainties with which we operate are are very perilous. But imputation is the sort of I will stay in relationship with you no matter what. Yeah. Um, you're, as you said, it's a disaster. Uh, conflicts like this, especially this particular conflict, because it's over land. Um, right. I think is. Uh, is particularly disastrous and it's very hard not to look at it and give up all hope i think uh without thinking that 
maybe that there is a otherworldly that God relates to you and I independent of our ability to figure this thing out. Cause it's, it's certainly hope so. I, uh, oh my gosh. I love that Dave. That's a really good word. Um, you know, cause I, I do think we are all, you know, I don't, I'm bad with sports for Monday morning quarterbacking the whole situation. And it's like, you know, there's some things that like, we're just not going to know this side of the veil. And like, all we can do is like, pray for peace and pray for, you know, I texted Jacob Smith, we were texting you about this. And it's like, you know, you just want to pray for every four year old in Israel and every four year old in Gaza, right? Like, because they're yeah. the ones that are thrust into this. Yeah, we, we reminded me a few things. We were talking about, you know, the whole Middle East thing in our men's group and how do we think Christianly about this and, and what are we, you know, and I loved what my associate DJ said is he said, you know, we don't have to have an opinion about this. You don't yeah. have to have an opinion. You know, we're, we're called to love and not to necess- and not to take sides and not to know. We're just called to, to love. Um, and Jacob Smith, you know, you were just talking about Dave. I remember he once said, um, you know, as a, as a priest pastor, your congregants can always break up with you, but you can never break up with them. Yes. <laughs> you know, you got to be yeah. in it no matter what. Yes. And then, um, of course, that just brings to mind what, um, what do we say? It's Capon? Capon? What is it? I, I say it wrong Capen. all the time. We're going It is Capon. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. Capon. Um, says about left-handed power, right? That mm-hmm. right-handed power is the power to get things done. But left-handed power is just the power of unconditional love that looks like weakness. And it doesn't actually it doesn't guarantee it'll accomplish anything. You know, unconditional love may soften someone's heart and it may just have you get your face bashed in. But the only thing it guarantees is that you will not close the door to relationship with that person from your side. They may Mm -hmm. close it from their side, but you're always going to keep it open. And then he also says that left-handed power, the power of unconditional love is the only thing in the world that evil can't corrupt. Which I love, right? It's true. evil, Evil can very easily corrupt power, you know, yeah. right-handed power, but it can't corrupt the power of there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you no matter what. And that's right. what make you know, that's what makes for good parents and good spouses and good pastors and good, you know, that's what we, people who are willing to stick in there with us, like that guy's mom. Yeah. You know? I mean, um, but the, the, the possibility yeah. of a pardon, extraordinary mercy, I mean, that's is not to be expected and it's not deserved. Not and like if you yeah. the more you dig yeah. into the conflict there, the more intractable it's it, it seems. It's totally intractable. And I think yeah. that the, the And nobody knows. The, what Sim, Simeon Zal, my brother, talked about in Minnesota, and this predated the atrocities, he just said that we have this Marvel movie idea of like one power needing to be defeated by a larger power. Like mm-hmm. the answer to and and uh, that's not a Christian idea. That's not just sort of trying to find the next stone in the infinity gauntlet that will actually allow you to beat the bitter bad guy. It's more uh, somehow that um, the laying down of one's life that that quote unquote that evil is is to be redeemed rather than um, destroyed. Like that's a very different way of looking at. The only way to to, to conquer evil is to love it unconditionally. Is to love the person who's yeah. perpetrating it, not to love evil, but you know what I mean. Yeah. To love the person who's perpetrating it. Uh, but I also and- think as Christians, sometimes we just need to shut up and not talk that much about this. Yes, I, mean, I think that's okay. Yeah. 
but what, without being callous to the suffering of our neighbors, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's a big, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that I honestly, Dave, I think that's our role, right. Is to pray for an end to suffering and to pray for peace. And I mean, like, I think that I literally think that's our role. I don't think it's to go on some rant in either direction. I think it's, you know, one thing I did this past week is I called or texted every Jewish friend I have mm. and was like, Hey, I'm really worried about you. How's it going? You know, and I had a friend who texted back and she's like, I had to drop my kid off at Hebrew school on Saturday. And it was like dropping her off at a government office. You know, the papers I had to show and the military out front, like that we can do and we can pray for, we can pray for them and we can pray for peace. But that's, that's it. I I just feel very strongly. That's it. Cause the moment that we slip into this, like, we are just adding to the divisiveness of the situation when we slip into this like whole thing. And, you know, it's, it is complicated. It is, it is, I mean, God bless this, you know, Josh and I were sitting there last night looking at, um, you know, the fact that this hospital that was bombed is Anglican, like it's one of ours, Mm. you know, and just, um, the deep pain and suffering happening there. And all we can do is pray. Yeah. Did you did you see the article that Jason again another name I'm not going to get right Michelle 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 posted about Karl Barth? So in nineteen in 1932, Karl Barth was teaching um, sort of homiletics and theology in Germany when uh, the Nazi Party swept to power and the elections and Adolf Hitler came up and all his seminarians rushed up and were like, Herr Barth, Herr Barth, how do we preach? What do we say? Like mm-hmm. and and he said, um, preach as if nothing has happened. Mm. He said, uh, it's always business as usual in the kingdom of God. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, and he eventually was um, sort of banished. You know, he had Nazi SS officers in his lectures, and he was banished back to Switzerland and was obviously a leader in the confessing church movement, which resisted the Nazis. But his whole thing was like, God God is God, and you just keep on preaching the gospel. You mm-hmm. keep on talking about Jesus. You keep on talking about the truth. And you, you you don't you know you don't have to react to every um, thing that's happening, um, and that makes me a little nervous to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think about uh, Jesus and Paul, who lived in a more violent, more divided, more brutal world than we can possibly imagine, and they just and they but they always talked about deeper things, right? They didn't address the 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 Jewish. Roman, you know, they just talked about well, um, forgiveness of sins. And, why not yeah. talk to Esther Perel, a Jewish therapist? She's what? Stop focusing on what you're fighting about and think about what you're fighting for. I think. Like, for. I don't know if that can help us in this regard, but I'm, I'm I'm willing to do that. But from a point of view of relative, like keeping my own counsel and and and, and listening to the voices of those who have a little bit more skin in the game. Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it, it's it's so. <laughs> just so hard to do anything but just throw yourself on the ineffable mystery of God's mercy in a world that is just seems to only um, it keeps falling apart. I mean, that the left-handed power of God, if that's not the answer, then certainly escalation of conflict is not the answer. Oh my word. And like, that's, I think that's what, we were talking about in left-handed power and, and right-handed power. Imputation may not work, but the opposite is definitely not going to work. <laughs> not going like, to work. Right. You know? Right. It, um, yeah. So 
where's the hope there? It's in the possibility that that this eternal reality might find, you know, temporal uh, purchase um, in ways that we can't ask about or imagine, and that God is somehow in control despite all of the evidence that seems to suggest the opposite. Yeah. Anyway, maybe maybe we should pray. Why don't we, why don't we say, say a prayer? RJ, we say a yeah. prayer? Okay. Lord, we, we trust that you are God, that you are good. This is your world uh, that you died for and, and rose again, that you're present in. Help us to trust you and somehow, by your grace and the power of your spirit, to be instruments of your love and reconciliation, the proclamation of good news. We pray for healing in our own lives, in our families, in our churches, our communities, and in our world, Lord. Um, help us come to our rescue. Save us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, RJ. Thanks, guys. All right, see Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Oh